There we go. Great. So now we're recording. Um, so anyway, the goal is um, to learn some more of the basics of the Catholic faith and to become more acquainted with this book, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And so um, my thought with this is we're just going to go right through the catechism. The goal for today is about the, four, the first 50 pages, um, or 50 pages in this volume. I don't know how many it is in the other one, but whatever. Um, we're going to go through and it'll take roughly at probably 13 get-togethers like this to go through the entire catechism. And we're not going to read it word for word, although I am going to read a bunch of it, um, because in this setting, it's probably more important that we become acquainted with the words of the church and the citations from the church. And we get, like, you hear my words all the time, right? And I could just give you the Father Casey version of the catechism. Um, But the beauty of what we have with this is this is the catechism of the Catholic Church. Uh, when it was proposed to be written, it was actually an American cardinal who said, if young people throughout the world can wear the same style blue jeans, they could read the same catechism. Uh, and that was in the 80s. And it was, um, you know, that's it. We have, this is the same catechism for the entire world. It's the catechism of Um, our one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And so I think it's important that we become very familiar with it. So we have our volumes of it that uh, we use next door that we brought over for today. But I really recommend if you have, you should have a personal copy of the catechism yourself, just like you should have a Bible, you should have the catechism. And so, like I said, that version that you're all holding is only about seven and a half dollars on Amazon. Um, It's also available for free on the Vatican website. So it's totally accessible in that way. So you know what? I was going to use a big version because it's easier to read, but you all have the little version. So let's uh, go to that so we can have the same page numbers. So if you want to uh, flip open just right to the beginning there, it's page a nine. Page nine. Number one, God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. Uh, right there, like, that's, that's what God is infinitely perfect and good in himself, and he freely creates us. Why? Why did God make us? So we could share in the blessedness of his life, so that we can share in God's goodness. It's his total free gift. For this reason, at every time and in every place, God draws close to man. He seeks man, he calls man to seek him, to know him, to love him with all his strength. He calls together all men scattered and divided by sin into unity, the unity of his family, the church. To accomplish this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, his redeemer and savior. In his son and through him, he invites men to become, in the Holy Spirit, his adopted children, and thus heirs to his blessed life. Like, dang it, if you want a good mission statement for the church, like, here we go. Like, this is, this is what's, what we're going for. So this call should, respond, so should resound throughout the world. Christ sent forth the apostles. He had chosen, commissioned them to proclaim the gospel. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. Strengthened by this mission, the apostles went forth and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed their message by signs." To those, those who, with God's help, have welcomed Christ's call and freely responded to it are urged 
by the love of Christ to proclaim the good news everywhere in the world. This treasure received from the apostles has been faithfully guarded by their successors. All Christ's faithful are called to hand it on from generation to generation by professing the faith, by living it in fraternal sharing, by celebrating it in the liturgy and in prayer. Um, so, you know, I would recommend regularly going back through those first three points. Like, they're just good spiritual reading to like, what's the point of this whole... When we get so... We're preparing, just so you all know, our annual financial report. It has to be sent into the diocese. We have our finance council meeting coming up next week. And then it's going to be presented to the parish and that has to be sent to the diocese. And like, dang it, I'm just so focused on money and numbers and bills and all that right now. It's good to go back and read the beginning of the catechism. What's the point of the whole thing that we're doing? Um, God wants us to be infinitely happy with him. He sent out his apostles. Um, and that we um, we're called to hand it on. For we we're called to hand on the beauty of what we've received. Quite early on, the name catechist was given to the totality of the church's efforts to make disciples. So that's exactly what we're doing. Like this is part of what we've always done as the church. It's hand on what we've received, so we can know the faith that we profess. Um, it's an education in the faith, um, children young people, adults, um, especially those who need to teach Christian doctrine apart it. Like, so we need to, um, yeah, catechesis is for everyone. It's not just for children. There's no children here, actually. Um, and so it's, it's, catechesis is meant to be for everyone. We regularly need to be um, reminded of the church's mission. Great. Um, skipping through the aim and intended readership of the catechism number 11, this is supposed to be an organic synthesis of the essential and fundamental contents of the Catholic doctrine as regards both faith and morals in light of the Second Vatican Council and the whole of the Church's pr- tradition. Its principal sources are sacred scriptures, the fathers of the Church, the liturgy, and the Church's magisterium. We're going to go through, it's going to be cool, like looking at some of the uh, citations and what, where all this stuff comes from becoming more familiar with the names of the Vatican Council documents, the different sections of scripture where this comes from. So the Catechism, this book, is broken into four sections. Um, Part one is the profession of faith. Um, In this version of it, that's going to take us to uh, probably around page 300. So uh, part one is the profession of faith. Part two is the sacraments. Part three is the life of faith, um, which is morality, and it's structured by the basics of morality and then the Ten Commandments. And part four is prayer in the life of the church. And again, that's, we're going to get there toward the end, but that's a great thing to just go and if you want to learn a little bit more about prayer, uh, that is awesome spiritual reading there. Uh, so this is, it's, a, it's an organic and, but systematic presentation of the Catholic faith in its entirety. Now, again, just a note on using the book, there is an index in the back. So if you have like a question about any particular thing in the church, like go to the index and see what the catechism says about it. Um, That's the first place we should go. So uh, there's scripture in here. There's going to be other quotations. And this is about, this is the, the systematic presentation. Let's just go to number, no, we're going to cite it by numbers so that those who don't have uh, the same version, if you're reading a different version, do you see the little numbers before each paragraph? 
So that's going to be the way that we'll all be on the same section. These numbers are universal uh, throughout the church. So number 25, in this little white version, it's on page 15. Number 25. To conclude this prologue, it's fitting to recall this pastoral principle stated in the Roman Catechism, which was the catechism before this one from the Council of Trent. The whole concern of doctrine and its teaching must be directed to the love that never ends. Whether something is proposed for belief, for hope, or for action, the love of our Lord must always be made accessible so anyone can see that all the works of perfect Christian virtue spring from love and have no other objective than to arrive at love. That love is motivating everyone. We want to fall in love. We want to fall in love with Almighty God. And the more we know God, the more we're going to be able to fall in love. St. Jose Maria Escriva, uh, in this little book, The Way, uh, the very last point out of all the advice that he gives in this book, his very last point, point 999 in this book, The Way. And what is the secret to perseverance? Love. Fall in love and you will not leave him. Uh, that's the goal of all this, as we fall in love with our Lord. Um, and as we get to know God more, this is not just supposed to be a boring class. Rather, um, the whole time we should be just seeking more and more uh, to fall in love with our Lord. Great. So now um, on to part one, professional faith, section one, I believe, we believe. Um, Number 27, the desire for God. The desire for God is written in the human heart because man is created by God and for God and God never ceases to draw man to himself. Only in God will he find the truth and happiness he never stops searching for. We were created to be filled by God. Our intellect wants to know all truth. And no one concrete truth is ever going to be sufficient for our intellect. It's not going to be enough, right? Like, okay, I know that two plus two equals four. Great. I still want to know more, and I want to know more, and we want to know this, and we want to know that, and we want to know this and that. Ultimately, until we get to the source of all truth, unconditioned truth, Almighty God, the intellect doesn't rest. It's always looking for something more and more and more. And finally, when it beholds God, the source of everything, the uncaused cause, right? That's whew, uh, that the intellect rests. And then as well, our will wants the good, right? Our will wants good. Um, it's made for the good. But no one good thing is going to satisfy. No one here is having coffee. Like, you know, a good, a good, go get coffee. Have a cut. Go get up, get up and get yourselves coffee. Come on. It's, it's whatever it is. It's eight, you know, nine o'clock in the morning almost. Get yourselves a cup of coffee. It's, don't be, let's not be uh, martyrs here. Um, but anyway, the will desires the good, and the good of a good cup of coffee is like, great. I had a good cup of coffee earlier this morning, but it, um, oh, there's probably cream and sugar in the, um, the sugar's there, there's cream in the fridge. The will, though, doesn't rest with any particular good. You could have one good cup of coffee, and then it just, um, it, it, we want more. We're going to need more. So oh, we're figuring it out. Any button will work. Anyway. So we want, you could have a good of a good cup of coffee, 
But if you don't, you're going to want another one, right? And you're going to want another one after that and another one after that eventually. You're never, we're never satisfied. That's a famous song from the musical Hamilton, Satisfied, right? You'll never be satisfied um, in this life. We'll never be satisfied in this life. Um, we'll only be satisfied in God, the unconditioned good. And when our will, you know, possesses God in a, a certain sense, then we'll ultimately be happy. We have a desire for God because we have a desire for total happiness. And so that's, that's what's called the natural desire for God. Um, the, the natural desire for God is something that's in each and every person desires that unconditioned happiness. Now, what are the ways of coming to know God? We're on number 31 here. Creating God's image and called to know and love him, the person who seeks God discovers certain ways of coming to know him. They're called the proofs of the existence of God. Not in the sense of proofs in the natural sciences, but rather in the sense of converging and convincing arguments, which allow us to attain certainty about the truth. Right, so we believe it's a firm teaching of the faith that it is possible to know that God exists without um, revelation, like by reason alone, by natural sciences, you can know that God exists. All things have a cause; they're they're um, moved from potency to action. Thomas Aquinas would say, um, and but. You can't just have like caused, 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 like, well, what started the cause, right? You need an uncaused cause. You need an unmoved mover that you can't just have what's called in philosophy an infinite regress where things just keep going back and back. And well, even like the big, I know I talked about this at mass a number of weeks ago, like the big bang, like what banged? Like, you know, if you say like, oh, it's, there was the big bang. Well, the big bang, like, well, what, what was there to make the bang, right? It, from nothing, you get nothing. And so um, when you have nothing, nothing happens. Um, there had to be something. You can't just, from nothing, you can't just get something burping itself into existence. Um, and so we say that God is, the, is whatever that first cause is, St. Thomas Aquinas would say that's simply what all people call God. Um, and that there's other arguments that are of a similar way. Again, the first Vatican Council in the decree Dei Filius says it's possible to know um, that Almighty God exists. This is firm teaching of the church. It's possible to know that there is a God that exists. And we can know certain properties of God. There can only be one God, because if there are two gods, well, where did, like... It, again, you're just getting to like which God created what? Like how did that, how did that happen? Um, so we know that there are, uh, there's one God. This God is the source of all good, of all truth, of all justice. Um, so that's, you know, the world starting from, Catechism says it right here, number 32, the world. Starting from movement, becoming, contingency, the world's order and beauty, one can come to a knowledge of God as origin and end of the universe. Also, that next one, the human person. With this openness to beauty, to truth and beauty, 
his sense of moral goodness, his freedom and the voice of his conscience, with his longings about the infinite and for happiness, man questions himself about God's existence. In all this, he discerns signs of his spiritual soul. The soul, the seed of eternity we bear in ourselves, irreducible to the merely material, can have its origin only in God. Um, that, that there's a desire for something in the human being, and also like conscience, that conscience is something that's formed within us, but we kind of get, all humans get, like do good and avoid evil, and the, the perception of natural law. You almost have to like, you have to actively try to break down someone's understanding of goodness in order to, we naturally get, like, don't push people over, right? And then like, we, we all human beings kind of, we, we have these baseline morals. Well, where did they come from? C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says like, letters from no one, right? Like, you can't have letters coming. If you have a letter, if you receive a letter, it had to come from someone. Um, and as we have these moral sentiments that are common to most of humanity or all of humanity, unless it's explicitly um, warped out of them, uh, where, where, where did that come from? Uh, it had to have a source. Okay, so um, we can know about God naturally, but God um, also reveals himself to us. Knowledge of God according to the church. This is number 36. Our Holy Mother, the Church, holds and teaches that God, the first principle and last end of all things, can be known with certainty from the created world by the natural light of human reason. Without this capacity, man would not be able to welcome God's revelation. Man has this capacity because he was created in the image of God. In the historical conditions in which he finds himself, however, man experiences many difficulties in coming to know God by the light of reason alone. We're not going to read that big, long citation there. This is why man stands in need of being enlightened by God's revelation. Not only about those things that exceed his understanding, but about those religious and moral truths which of themselves are not beyond the grasp of human reason, so that even in the present condition of the human race, they can be known by all men with ease, with firm certitude, and with no admixture of error. Um, that is referencing St. Thomas Aquinas. So St. Thomas Aquinas says that it's, while it's possible to know that God exists by philosophy alone, you would only be a very few people that would get to know it after a long time, and they would get some stuff uh, wrong along the way. And so even though it's possible, so that all of us poor um, sinners and uh, those of us who don't have the time to devote to that type of philosophical learning, so that we can know God reveals himself, right? It would be possible for you to go investigate who I am on the internet. Uh, one of my friends wrote me a Christmas card from high school and was so impressed that I have Google results. They're like, if we Google you, Father Casey, you have Google results. Like, if you, there are pictures, if you just Google Father Michael Casey, Connecticut, because there is a Father Michael Casey who uh, is in Australia who wrote, writes books. He's the more famous Father Michael Casey for now. Um, no, forever. But anyway, the point is, um, the point is he, um, I have Google results. So you could Google stuff about me and figure out stuff about me and you could go ask 
my family and you could investigate where I went to school. And, but you know, if I just say, hi, I'm Father Michael Casey. I was born in Waterbury. I went to Holy Cross High School in Waterbury. I went to seminary in Philadelphia and then in Rome. And I'm the pastor of St. Francis of Assisi Parish in New Britain. It's much easier for me to just tell you than for you to go look it up, right? Well, with God, we could go try to look it up and explore and do all the scientific research into the fact that God exists and some of his characteristics. But guess what? God just says, hey, I exist, right? Like he reveals it to us so that we can, with greater ease, come to know his existence. All right, great. And look at that. Just like that, we are through chapter one of the catechism. Um, Beautiful. So when God, we're on number 50 now, and we're on page, yeah, we got a long way to go. All right. I hope hope that that coffee is delicious. Um, No, I'm good, but you better enjoy this because, well, no, we are going to always try to keep these to 45 minutes being done by 9.30. So if we start at 8.45, we'll be done by 9.30, and that's going to be... If you have to make plans, if you want, and if you have to leave early, leave early. It's totally fine. By natural reason, we're on number 50. By natural reason, man can know God with certainty on the basis of his works. But there's another order of knowledge that man cannot possibly arrive at by his own powers, the order of divine revelation. Through an utterly free decision, God has revealed himself and given himself to man. This he does by revealing the mystery his plan of loving goodness formed from all eternity in Christ for the benefit of all men. God has fully revealed this plan by sending us his beloved son, our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. God freely tells us about him. He wasn't under any obligation to, but God freely reveals himself to us. And the ultimate uh, revelation of God is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It pleased God in his goodness and wisdom to reveal himself and to make known the mystery of his will. His will is that men should have access to the Father through Christ the Word made flesh in the Holy Spirit and thus become sharers in the divine nature. That's from Dei Verbum, uh, the Second Vatican Council Constitution on Divine Revelation. God who dwells in inapproachable light wants to communicate his own divine life to the men he freely created in order to adopt them as his sons and his only begotten son. By revealing himself, God wishes to make them capable of responding to him and of knowing him, of loving him, far beyond their own natural capacity. You know, um, it said the order of revelation is, you can't guess at it, right? So um, unless God reveals his inner life to us, I've used this example before, but by looking at me right now, you can tell that... um, there is somebody here who exists and he's um, a man roughly approaching middle age faster every day. Um, he's about five, seven ish, um, you know, maybe a little overweight with all that pastor diet and whatever. Um, but you could tell these things just by looking at me. But until I say like, hey, I'm having a great morning. You would have no way you could guess, but you wouldn't know my inner life what's going on inside me unless I tell you. The same way with you. I probably could try to read your body language that some of you really wanted cups of coffee, but until someone says, I'm dying for a cup of coffee, I don't know. There's no way I would know that, right? We can't just, you could guess, 
But until we open up our mouths and talk about ourselves, we, you, people don't know what's going on inside us. It's the same with God, that we can know that God exists, but you can't know the Trinity by reason alone. God tells us his inner life. God tells us this personal communion between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God reveals this to us. That's revelation. God telling us what's going on inside. Um, the stages of revelation, uh, number 54. Um, so basically what happens is God created all of humanity, and we're going to get to that next week. But God created all of humanity, and then humanity sinned and broke their relationship with God. Um, so God slowly now is revealing himself and reforming humanity to know him and to love him. So uh, you have Adam and Eve in the beginning. God makes himself known. Um, and look, we could just look at the titles here. And then God makes a covenant with Noah. Um, and so God is slowly forming um, Noah and saving him from sin. But then in a singular moment, um, and in the book of Genesis, it is chapter 17. It's like a turning point in the book of Genesis where, oh, it's probably a good idea if you want to bring Bibles too. Um, that could be fun, although we're probably not going to get to it too, too much. But it's cool. Um, nope, never mind, not chapter 17. Yeah, chapter 12. Chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, um, it's like a new thing, right? Because before that you had like the prehistory of Israel, but now like God chooses one man, Abram. And he says, go out from your father's house and your land and go to where I tell you. And so this is like, this is the beginning of the Jewish people. And they're, you know, the Jewish people are called what? Children of Abraham. That this is, it's Abraham and his descendants. And so God makes a covenant with Abraham that he would bless his descendants and all na- by in him all nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so now we get Abraham and we get his children, Isaac, and now Isaac's son, Jacob, and Jacob's son, Joseph, and his brothers who become the 12 tribes of Israel, um, a little bit. Joseph's two sons um, could take the place of tribes as well, and Levi is left out, so that's where you get the number 12. Um, anyway, so we get uh, the, the people of Israel. Um, and then, you know, again, if we're just going through the Old Testament, they're enslaved in Egypt, and then there's the great exodus moment where they're, they're released from that slavery. But this is all God revealing himself and leading this, this people and preparing them and primarily giving them the law so that the Jewish people would be the people of the law. Behave the way that God tells you right? That God tells the Jewish people how to act. And even though like, again, there's nothing explicitly wrong with eating pork. I, I may have bacon for breakfast later today. Um, there's nothing wrong with eating pork, but God says, as a part of your identity, don't eat pork, right? Don't do it. It's forming a people by identity. There, God makes a law with the Jewish people and says, do this, don't do this, and it forms them as a people who are willing to listen to and obey the Lord. So that when fully prepared, we're at number 65 right now. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers, the prophets. But in these last days, 
He has spoken to us by his Son. Christ, the Son of God made man, is the Father's one perfect, unsurpassable word. In him he has said everything. There is to be no other word than this one. That is, Jesus is the fullness of revelation. That Jesus comes in... in Jesus doesn't just tell us about God. Jesus is God. Jesus doesn't just reveal the Father. Jesus is the revelation of the Father. So he both tells us, but also just in his person, in what he does, in how he acts. Jesus reveals the Father's love, the Father's uh, mercy. Now, here's an important point, uh, number 66. There will be, just the title there, there will be no further revelation. That we believe that God fully revealed himself in his son. And so there will be no new revelation. We're not waiting for God to tell us anything else. God has told us everything in the person of Jesus Christ. We as the church continue to live and unpack that, but revelation is complete. We believe that revelation is completed with the death of the last apostle, who would be the apostle St. John, and that there's no new revelation now. God has revealed everything to us, and we as the church are receiving that revelation continually, and that we are living um, from that, and that's who we are as the church. But there is... No new revelation. Very end of number 67. The Christian faith cannot accept revelations that claim to surpass or correct the revelation. Even look at the capital letter there. The revelation of which Christ is the fulfillment. As in the case of certain non-Christian religions and also certain recent sects which base themselves on such revelations. Like, okay, 400 years after Jesus dies, someone says, I'm, you know, this new revelation. We don't, we can't, God doesn't reveal himself. There are no more prophets. There are no more direct communications. Now there's what we call private revelations. You have like the divine mercy apparitions, but those are not capital R revelation. You don't have to believe those to be Catholic. You don't have to believe in the apparitions of Our Lady at Guadalupe or Lourdes. Those are little R revelation. They're, they kind of help us along the way. But if you don't believe anything happened at Lourdes, fine. Like, if you don't believe Jesus is God, you're not Catholic, right? So there's a difference between big R revelation and personal or private revelations, which are just apparitions and things like that. Um, that's not big R God's revealing of his inner life to us, which is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Okay. Now, it's cool. In the catechism, if you kind of got lost with everything we just said, they have this in brief section. And so if you want to read number 68 to 73, that's like the summary of everything I just said. So, um, you know, every, every article has an in brief section, which kind of sums up what's going on. We are, we are making progress. This is so good. Sure. So would it, be, would it be fair to say that a personal or private revelation is actually um, just giving us more information on the big R revelation? It's, it, right. It's, it's further, it could further unpack the big R revelation, or it could just be to kind of 
it could be a good source of encouragement, right? Like Our Lady appears. And so a good example, Mary says at Lord's, I am the Immaculate Conception, right? The Immaculate Conception is a dogma. You have to believe it, but we don't believe it because of Lord's, but Lord's kind of helps it along. It kind of gives us strength to believe it, gives us a little bit of encouragement, but it's not, we don't believe it because of St. Bernadette and the apparitions at Lord's, but rather it helps us along. So yeah, um, small R, private, uh, divine mercy too. Like uh, also the, the sacred heart, right? To St. Margaret Mary Alacoque. The, the heresy of Jansenism was ravaging the church with this thought of like, God is angry and hates you and you're probably not going to make it to heaven. And so what happens, our Lord appears to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque and shows her his sacred heart. Like this is the God of the Bible. Uh, this is, so the, the devotion to the sacred heart to counter the heresy of Jansenism, uh, which is described by some to be the worst heresy to have ever afflicted the church, although I think currently modernism is giving it a run for its money. Um, but that we have, like our Lord's sacred heart is God loves us, right? God loves us with a human heart. That's what's revealed in the Gospels and through the tradition of the church um, and that the apparition of the sacred heart or of divine mercy is just meant to encourage us in that way, to remind us a little bit. But it's not a new revelation. Awesome. The transmission of divine revelation. Um, that if you're going to reveal something, you have to do it. You got, you got to pass it on, right? If I want to tell you about myself, I have to open my mouth and form words that are in a language that you can understand. I use this example all the time. So people that listen on the podcast to any of the classes I give, it's always my example. Ma... Posso fare tutto questo in italiano, ma voi non potete capire perché voi non parlate italiano. Per questo devo rivelarmi in un modo che voi potete capire. I can try to do this in Italian if I had an Italian catechism, um, but you wouldn't understand. It does, it's no good me saying something in a language you don't understand. So God reveals himself in a way that we can understand. It's not like God's going to do something in a way we don't, I don't speak thundercloud. Like, sorry, I don't do it. God reveals himself through signs and symbols in word form so that we can understand. That's the way that the human mind is meant to know. Um, through images, through example, through word and communication. Number 75, the apostolic tradition. Christ the Lord in whom the entire revelation of the Most High God is summed up, commanded the apostles to preach the gospel, which has been promised beforehand by the prophets, and which he fulfilled in his own person and promulgated with his own lips. In preaching the gospel, they were to communicate the gifts of God to all men. This gospel was to be the source of all saving truth and moral discipline. Um, and so the apostles went out, keeping with the Lord's command, the gospel was handed on in two ways. Orally, the apostles handed on by spoken word of their preaching and by the example they gave, by the institutions they established, what they themselves had received, whether from the lips of Christ or um, from his way of life, his works, or whether they had learned it by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. There's a line in uh, John's gospel. I will send you the paraclete and he will remind you of all these things that I told you. This is Christ talking to the apostles. So, so the Holy Spirit reminds the apostles, like, remember when Jesus did that? You need to do that. 
Or remember when he did this? Write that down, right? We're going to get to inspiration in a few minutes. Um, and in writing, by those apostles and other men associated with the apostles who under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit committed the message of salvation to writing. And that this is then continued in um, apostolic succession. So that the living transmission of... Revelation is not just the Bible. That we have, we believe that revelation is contained in scripture and in tradition. Um, And that this is, they're not two different forms of revelation. Rather, it's the one common revelation of God that is contained in two forms. Scripture and the, the, the tradition of the church. So the Bible, like, we have the Bible. This is scripture. This is God's revelation. But also we have the tradition of the church. That we've always, as the church, lived this. And that the magisterium, uh, we're going to get the magisterium. Let's flip over to number 85. The task of giving authentic interpretation to the word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. Its authority in this matter is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ, And that's what we call the magisterium. This means the task of interpretation has been entrusted to the bishops in communion with the successor of Peter, the bishop of Rome. That the Pope, by his own authority, can interpret sacred scripture um, and can teach the tradition of the church or all of the bishops in communion with the Pope as well um, teach in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus. That they are the living interpretation of of the tradition and scripture. Scripture is received in the church and that the Bible is the book of the church. And so when you have like, as the church, we've always, um, you know, show me explicitly some of the precepts of the mass in the Bible, but we've always had this reverence for the Eucharist that we find like in John 6, we have our Lord's Last Supper discourse. We have the, not the Last Supper, we have the Lord's, the Bread of Life discourse. We have the Last Supper. We have St. Paul's instruction. But then the apostles from very early on were celebrating Mass. And so there's the lived tradition of the church as it's handed on and Scripture. They're not opposed to each other. And there's not some things in one that aren't in the other, but rather it is the one revelation of God in its two forms. And so scripture and tradition are always very much in, uh, in line and that the church is the authentic interpreter of that. What do you got? Is her questions okay? Oh, of course. Okay, so I don't want to send us on a detour here, but when I read a statement like in number 86, it says, yet this magisterium is not superior yes. to the word of God. And then I think about um, some of the controversies recently when, say, the Holy Father... Uh, I can change the catechism regarding... The death penalty. penalty. It's interesting because we don't have the new section in this catechism because of when it was printed. No, but I've heard other people, I don't know if they're just not being faithful to the church or if they're being smart, but question whether the Holy Father could have done that or should have done that. Sure. So the, the, so uh, a couple points. One, um, the Holy Father on his own authority um, can authentically teach um, and, and interpret the tradition of the faith. Now, what happens, though, when he does that, 
and this is in any context, you have to look at what he actually says, right? It's the words are important. Um, and whenever there's a teaching of the church, like words are very important. So for the Pope to change the catechism, um, to teach about the death penalty, um, he never said the death penalty is an intrinsically evil act, right? Capital punishment is not intrinsically evil. And the Pope cannot authoritatively say, we have to hold that the death penalty is always and everywhere wrong. What he's saying is, uh, and what he put in the catechism is, given the current situation in the world, we shouldn't need this anymore. Now, given the current situation in the world, that's a, that's a judgment on world affairs. If the Pope is getting bad advice on world affairs, then when he prefaces, there's another example, John Paul II said, Given the scientific criteria, it seems like brain death is actual death. Well, guess what? If science changes, the Pope's statement no longer is uh, a valid statement. Given the information we have, it seems this, right? So when the Pope says, given the current state of the world, it seems like this is inadmissible. Now, again, it's not immoral. He says inadmissible, which is we shouldn't be doing this. Like We shouldn't be putting people to death if we can incarcerate them um, and give them a further chance at conversion. Um, But he's not saying that it's in and of itself immoral. Um, But to get to the point with the catechism, it does, the the church is not above um, revelation. Like the church, you can't make new revelation. Um, An example, uh, let's go with G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton says, imagine that you are given the job uh, like there's a white fence or let's take like a white radiator, right? Cause it's right here. There, there's that white ish radiator. And someone said, I say to Evo, Evo, keep that radiator white, right? What's the worst thing he could do? Never touch it, right? That's the worst. Well, the worst thing he could do would be to paint a different color. That would be, okay. That's clearly teaching contrary to the faith, but to just leave it all alone, like, uh, in the example Cheston uses of a white fence, like, a white fence is not going to stay white all that long if you just leave it alone. What does it regularly need to be? Repainted white. Like, it's the same color, but it needs a regular tune-up um, for modern circumstances. So, same with the church is not, a, the authority is not to change the color of the fence, but to clean up the air, you know, get rid of the, the dirt and the grime that may have accumulated, um, and you could say dirt and grime, you know, we could get into the death penalty specifically when we get to that section of the catechism, but dirt and grime can accumulate saying like we want to defend the right of the state to put people to death, which is a right that the state has. Like clearly that is a right of the state. However, we would all want to say, you know, oh, I'm getting into rough water here. Um, we're not going to make it through all 50 pages. That's fine. I think what's good is we'll just get through it when we get through it. Um, what you could say, nowhere, nowhere, nowhere in the teaching of the church do we say that slavery is specifically immoral. This is how I've always read the Pope's statement on the death penalty. We don't say that slavery is specifically immoral. In fact, when you have some, slavery, a form of indentured servitude where people are cared for and given dignity, but they just... Slavery, we don't say is explicitly moral. In fact, St. Paul sends the slave Onesimus back to Philemon. Now, he asked Philemon to free him, but uh, we don't say anywhere that slavery is explicitly immoral. It's an immoral thing. 
But in the modern world, we say, yeah, there shouldn't be slavery, right? We, the way that the world is, we shouldn't have slaves anymore. Like, that shouldn't happen. Do we say it was immoral in the way that it was, in that it happened for history? No, we're saying that those cultural circumstances allowed, and it could be a form of just indentured servitude, but um, we never said it was, it was explicitly immoral. The Pope is saying the way the world is now, we probably shouldn't be putting people to death for punishment, you know, as a form of punishment. Um, are we saying it was ever immoral or that we would never need it again? No, um, but it's a judgment based upon current world affairs. Um, but we could talk more about it when we get to that section too. All right. Um, supernatural sense of the faith here, numbers 91 and 92, uh, that we have what's called the census fidei, that the, the people in the church pretty much have a good, um, have a sense of, of what, what the church, what we believe, right? So you have certain theology. I'm just going to use an example here, um, and then I think we're going to conclude with this. We, um, you have uh, certain theologians that are saying that um, there's nobody in hell, right? There's nobody in hell. Well, I would say that the census fidei disagrees with that. That we would believe that if you die in a state, well, first of all, it's a dogma of the faith. If you die in a state of mortal sin, you go to hell. Secondly, I believe that there are people that die in a state, of, and if, like most of us in this room would agree, there's at least some people in hell. Like, we don't know who, but there's probably at least, and the church, I think, would generally hold, there are people in hell. We don't, but a, so a theologian that wants to kind of say, there's nobody in hell, it's completely empty. Well, the census fidei says, no, you know what? <laughs> that's, not, um, that's not the sense of the faith. That's not the supernatural appreciation for the faith uh, that's called the census fidei. On the part of the whole people, when from the bishops to the last of the faithful, they manifest a universal consent in matters of faith and morals. Um, cool. And then we do have to, uh, just 94 and 95, we have to grow in an understanding of our faith. Um, and so it's, you know, through theological research, through contemplation and study, um, through really reading the Bible. Um, yeah, so we have to grow in that. Nice. We are not going to make it all the way. We're on page 34. We're not going to make it to page 58 uh, before the end of the morning. So why don't we just call it there? And I think that we're not in any rush, right? I, I hope to be here for another couple of years more. So why don't we just slowly, um, why don't we slowly work our way through? Uh, I recommend buy a copy of the Catechism if you can. Maybe read what we went through today and just as a nice review. And we'll meet again next. I, I looked at the calendar. Like, it does, unless something comes up, it looks like I'll be here every first Saturday for 2020. There may be just a discrepancy with regard to October 3rd, which is the day before our feast day that we'd have to look at. But anyway, it looks like most first Saturdays, things are going to be going. We'll be sure to keep information in the bulletin. So why don't we conclude? Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. St. Francis of Assisi. Holy guardian angels, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.